Hello, packed into this week's 15-minute show, Potential War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity in Ethiopia's Tigray. We hear from the UN Rights Office, which has spoken to victims and their families. An urgent appeal for Afghanistan's broken, broken people from the UN Migration Agency and news from the Climate Summit in Glasgow, where countries have been reminded that they need to spend a lot more on climate emergency adaptation measures, not just on tackling emissions. Stay with us too for poetic closing thoughts from the show's regular guest, Solange Bejotege Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva. Thanks for listening. First, the news. At the Global Climate Summit in Glasgow, over 40 countries have pledged to stop using coal. The development on Thursday included states that are heavily reliant on carbon-heavy coal, such as Chile, Poland and Vietnam, but not China and the US. The first week of the COP26 summit has also seen 20 countries, the US included, commit to end public financing for unabated fossil fuel projects abroad by the end of 2022. Staying with the summit, the UN Environment Agency, UNEP, has urged countries to spend much more on adaptation measures so that they can withstand damage and limit destruction from climate shocks. The agency's executive director, Inga Anderson, said that as the world looks to step up efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions, which still aren't strong enough, it must also dramatically up its game to adapt to climate change. According to a new UNEP report, adaptation costs are likely to reach close to $300 billion a year by the end of the decade. The UN agency also said that countries are not using COVID-19 recovery investment to withstand climate emergencies, since only a small portion of the $16.7 trillion stimulus measures has been spent on adaptation. To Afghanistan now and a stark warning from the UN Migration Agency, IOM, which said on Thursday that ongoing conflict, grinding poverty and climate-related emergencies have pushed the country to the brink of collapse. People are broke and broken, said IOM Director General Antonio Vitorino after returning from a two-day visit to the country. He said that more than half the population is struggling to eat, malnutrition is reaching dramatic levels, especially for many children, and over more than 8 in 10 people contacted by the agency had lost their jobs and livelihoods. Millions are living in inadequate shelters with limited access to basic services, including sanitation and healthcare, Mr Vitorino said, adding that 5.5 million people are now internally displaced inside Afghanistan. Finally, pockets of famine have been reported in southern Madagascar, the UN World Food Programme, or WFP, has warned, as the country braces for the lean season. In addition to the most intense drought in 40 years, WFP said that more than 1.3 million Malagasy people face crisis levels of food insecurity or worse. They've also been affected by the relatively new phenomenon of sandstorms, which are likely caused by soil erosion and deforestation, and a chronic lack of water, which has hit harvests. Latest data and forecasts indicate that the most vulnerable at risk of famine number some 30,000 between now and the end of the year. Arduino Mangoni, WFP Deputy Country Director in Madagascar, described the emergency as maybe the first climate change famine on Earth. Whenever one enters a nutrition centre, the situation is, is heartbreaking with silence, no joy, kids just staring at you. And in a situation of really skin and skin and bones, I have been working with the World Food Programme in several countries in this continent, in several emergencies, including DRC, the Central African Republic, in Darfur. I have never seen kids in the situation they are in. To provide emergency aid for the next six months, the agency has appealed for $69 million. 
the headlines there, and you're listening to UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, with me, Daniel Johnson. Now to this week's interview, which centres on the Tigray conflict in North Ethiopia, where Ethiopian government forces and their allies, including Eritrean forces and others, have been fighting Tigrayans since November 2020. The situation has created a catastrophic humanitarian crisis for millions, with 400,000 people now living in famine-like conditions. Responsibility for rights violations lies with all sides, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights tells us, in a new report on the first eight months or so of the conflict. To talk about this, I spoke to Françoise Miander, who's the Section Chief for East and Southern Africa at the UN Rights Office. Here she is now telling me what the report's key findings were, what the impact has been on the people of Tigray to date, and the search for accountability and truth. There are many violations and abuses that have been reported, and at least colleagues have been in a position to interview victims and witnesses. So in terms of violations, there are quite many, of course, so you have in the news already the report about attacks against civilians. Colleagues have been, and they were even able to see the, the impact of the shelling on houses, hospitals, schools, and, and houses. I don't know if I mentioned already, but the extrajudicial killings happened. Many people have been killed. Torture have been also mentioned. But one of the, I would say, the key violation for me is, as maybe a woman, is more what is related also to sexual gender-based violence. How widespread was it? It was quite widespread. Um, many victims have been interviewed, but not that many because, of course, you know what is linked to rape. It's always very difficult to talk about it, but at least colleagues have been in a position to talk with uh, many. And I mentioned during the press conference uh, some of the examples quite appalling. Uh, yes, there was one talk of a mother gang raped in front of her three-year-old child. But there has been some accountability, hasn't there? Ethiopian authorities have said they've pursued prosecutions against some 20 defendants. Is that right? Do you have any more detail on that? Uh, the government told us, uh, mentioned what they have taken as action, but we would like, and that uh, what the High Commission say, we would like to to have more to, or to see more because uh, in terms of transparency and also in terms of the magnitude of uh, what has been reported. So they really need to take action and what what the High Commission and think uh, not only the office but the international community is expecting from the government of Ethiopia is really to make sure that accountability and people are being held accountable for what they've done and give the information also to the public because also many are asking about the truth. They want many to families, you mean? Yeah, many families are asking about the truth. They want to know what's happened to their beloved ones. And um, so... There are reports of people whose hands were tied and shot in and found in the river. So there must be many hundreds, if not thousands, of families who want to know the truth. You were talking about transparency. So maybe we could talk about the obstacles that the report has allegedly come up against. I mean, how transparent is this? What was access like for your joint investigative team? In some uh, areas, it was, um, you know, there are some militias and uh, security officers uh, in the country, so it prevented the team from accessing some of the locations. And sometimes it was just a matter of security. And you know that so as a UN, they have, um, before moving to an area, so we need a kind of clearance because if it's unsafe, so the team couldn't proceed. So these were the type of challenges that they had. And some victims or some part of the population, especially in Tigray, they were also rejecting the fact that the Ethiopian 
Human Rights Commission was with the office. So they because this was a joint mission from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Ethiopian uh, Human, Human Rights, Rights Commission. Commission. Exactly, at their request. And the High Commissioner decided to go ahead because we didn't have any other solution. The situation was dire. And uh, the fact that we went together, it also helped the office to really work with the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission as a partner because we do that in many countries, equip them with um, necessary skills. We brought additional experts on the ground, you know, and we also used the office methodology in terms of investigation. So that was, uh, in my view, also one of the good outcome of this joint investigation, not only bringing about first-hand information regarding violations that had taken place, but also equipping the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission at least for the future, to in this type of endeavour. And maybe we could talk about the extreme brutality that the High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet has spoken about. She's coined it in that way. The main responsibility comes from who? The High Commissioner said it's from the, I mean, for the period covered by the joint investigation, when you read the reports. From November to June. November 2020 to June 2021. Exactly. So for that period, most of the violations have been committed by Ethiopian national forces and their allies, including Eritrean forces. But as the High Commission said, since the ceasefire in early July, we have seen also many, many abuses reported, uh, committed by Tigrayan forces. At the same time, at that moment, with the, the, I mean, yesterday, state of emergency declared by the government, the shelling of Mekele, and there are many more, you know, human rights violations by um, Ethiopia, but also by Tigrayan forces. Mm. So, I guess, finally, there are 400,000 people in famine-like conditions in Tigray among the millions who really need emergency support. So 400,000 people, what was the findings on the withholding of food as a weapon of war? The team, they didn't conclude, they were not able to conclude that the Ethiopia government used famine as a weapon of war, but there are many, many, many reports regarding the blockade, regarding the situation you just mentioned, people living mostly in a famine kind of situation, and many humanitarian workers also I mean, some of them have been killed. So there is a need really to also tackle that angle and to see how the, I hope, because the High Commission just mentioned the Prime Minister's statement that they will accept the recommendations of the report and some of them is also, one of them is related to the humanitarian access. So we would continue to push, of course, and the High Commission will continue to use our voice and with, with all partners, with member states to really try to push to have to see the situation improving a little bit because people are suffering and it's unbearable. Many thanks to Françoise Miander from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights for sharing time with UN News to tell us about the latest report on the Tigray conflict. And Solange, if I could turn to you, our regular guest on the show, thank you for joining us. What do you think about what we've just heard and about the level of violence and the rights violations against the people of northern Ethiopia? Hola, Daniel. Well, the report by the UN Human Rights Office and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission gives us a terrible picture of the region where the boundaries between good and evil are blurred and bullets come from all sides. With such fractured lives, I wonder, what does it mean to be Ethiopian today? In a past episode of UN Kachap, we talked about the time Rambo 
the French poet spent in Ethiopia. And recently, by chance, I came across an article in which Chris Beckett tells how Rimbaud inspired him to edit the first ever anthology of Ethiopian poetry in English. One day, he said, browsing the packed book stalls in the Piazza district of Addis Ababa, he discovered a book called Rambo. When he opened it, he saw an Amharic translation of Le Bateau Ivre, one of Rimbaud's major poems. This encounter with poetry in a language of Ethiopia inspired Beckett and Alemu Tebehe, a poet and journalist who fled Ethiopia in the early 1990s, to publish Songs We Learn from Trees. The year of publication, 2020, coincides with the escalation of conflict in northern Ethiopia. I find it remarkable that even in a country devastated by war, Beckett and Tebehe can still believe that poetry always finds a way to emerge as a life-giving weapon. And now, here is a powerful short poem from a young poet like Rimbaud. Call it Beuketu Seyum. It's called In Search of Fat. A multitude of thin people, all skin, call out like rag and bone men. Where's our fat? They ramage every mountain, stone, and hardy hole. Search in the soil, search in the sky. At last, they find it, piled up on one man's belly. Daniel. What does it mean to be Ethiopian today? It really is important to ask this question today. It is. Thank you, Solange. And um, many points there. And the first among them is, of course, as you said, poetry is the best life-giving weapon, but obviously not going to help the people who are in dire need in Tigray at the moment and in the neighboring region, as we heard, the conflict is escalating. Listen, we're out of time again. So, Solange, thank you so much for your poetic thoughts. Thank you, listeners, for being part of the show, following the UN's work faithfully. We'll be back next week. Don't forget, though, if you want more headlines, stories and interviews, just check out UN News forward slash Audio Hub. That's it then. Bye bye for now. Ciao, Daniel. Hasta pronto.